Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When we're failing to do the things that are most important in our lives, the typical diagnosis of the problem is to believe we're simply not working hard enough. And the typical solution, well, is to put in more effort, apply more discipline, and grind it out. My guests would say that we're thinking about both the root and the remedy of the issue in the wrong way. His name is Greg McEwen, and he's the author of the bestseller Essentialism, as well as his latest book, Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most. Today on the show, Greg shares how he came to realize that life isn't just about focusing on the essentials, but making those essential things the easy things. We discuss why it is that we commonly make things harder than they need to be. And while the right thing can be hard, just because something is hard doesn't make it the right thing. We then discuss the role that emotions like gratitude play in making things feel more effortless, why you need to have a clear vision of what being done looks like, including having done for the day list, how to overcome the difficulty of getting started with things through microburst of action, and how to keep going with them using a sustainable pace marked by upper and lower bounds. And we end our conversation with how seeking an effortless state applies to one's spiritual life. Along the way, Greg shares stories from history in his own life as to what it means to get your goals using a more effortless path. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash effortless. Greg McEwen, welcome back to the show. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So we had you on the show back in 2017 to talk about your book, Essentialism. That's episode number 331 for those who want to check it out. You've got a new book out called Effortless. And in this book, you know, in Essentialism, you tried the whole idea of that is that like you had to pare down what you do to the, what you think is the most essential, because by doing that, you can actually get more done because you're focusing on what's really important. And you've been preaching that your entire career. You did that in your own life. But then a few years ago, you reached this point in your own life where you felt overwhelmed despite winnowing everything, all the projects in your life to the most essential. So what happened there? Well, I just got to a point where I was feeling that the metaphor of the big rocks, which I'm sure you're familiar with, started to just just crack a little bit for me. So the the big rocks theory says, well, if you put the big rocks into a container first, and then the small rocks, and then the sand, it all fits, you know, like that. But if you put the order wrong, if you put all the sand in the small rocks, and then the big rocks, then it doesn't fit. It's a geometric problem. And if you get the order right, it works. In other words, if you put the essential things in first, and then the the less essential, and then leave the, the non-essential either out altogether or at the end, it all works. But I found in my life, in addition to becoming the father of essentialism, I was now the father to four children, growing responsibilities, more selective than I'd ever been. And I found myself faced with the question, what happens if you have too many big rocks? And in the midst of that, we then have a family crisis where one of my daughters, Eve, goes from the picture of health to suddenly having an undiagnosed but discombobulating what turned out to be neurological disease. And that just just pushed everything over the edge. There's, there's no room for all these rocks. What do you do now? And the journey that followed in our lives, I outline in the book, but also I have the chance to codify it. Uh, it's not just about doing the right things. Of course, that's important. Of course, that's essential. But you've also got to do them in the right way. So essentialism is about prioritization. Still completely believe that vital first step. 
but you've also got to, if I had to summarize in one word, the new book, I would say simplification. You have to remove all of the unnecessarily complicated ways you're going about the work that you're doing. That, that, is, that is so key in being able to be successful at what matters most, even with the you know, great challenges that come along that get in the way of doing that. No, so I'm a big, I've been a big fan of that, the rock metaphor, the jar and the rock metaphor. But as you explained in this book, and you just discussed right now, something that happens you don't take an account for, sometimes the size of the rocks change, right? So they, they're all still important, but sometimes like in your case, your family rock became really big because you had to deal with your daughter's health issue. But you still have to like, you have, you have a career, you have a, you have a job, people are depending upon you, you need to, that's still an important rock. So sometimes it doesn't work. You can't you can't fit them all in because the size of the rocks have changed. Well, and what it, it you're really faced with in that situation is you can either put some of those big rocks down, which is suboptimal, and, and a lot of people do. They say, okay, well, I'll just put my health down. Someone just said that to me the other day. Well, right now, so much is going on. I'm just not going to worry about health. So they're eating terribly. They're not exercising, and so on. And and in one sense, you. Is is very. I'm sympathetic to that because uh, you know I understand how challenging and hard life can be. On the other hand, if you're putting down the essential rocks, they're still essential, and so it begs the question: Well, is there an easier way to achieve what's essential? Maybe there's a way that you can say, "Well, let's not be so perfectionist about it. Let's not over-engineer this." Maybe there's a simpler path to being able to do the things that are essential so you can actually achieve them and you don't just have to put them down. Uh, and that's one of the driving points that I explore in this new book. Okay, so in Effortless, you lay out a game plan for creating an upwardly positive cycle, which you call being in an effortless state. I and mean, this effortless state tends to produce effortless action, which tends to produce effortless results. So you know, achieving this effortless state is an important foundation. I mean, that's where the positive cycle starts. So you describe this effortless state as being physically rested, uh, emotionally unburdened, and mentally energized, where you're aware of, you're in the present, you know what's important, you're able to bring all your intelligence, all your faculties, all your capabilities in that moment, and you're, you know like what is the most important thing you need to focus on in that moment. So that's the ideal state. You know, everything just feels easier, the effortless state. But most people operate most of the time from a very different state. You know, it's marked by frustration, burnout, suffering. Everything just feels harder than it needs to be. So let's talk about why that is. Like, Why aren't more people trying to do things in a more effortless way? And why do we make things harder than they need to be? We've been sold a bill of goods about this, partially with a sort of Puritan undertone, where we have been taught that good, essential right way of doing things is the hard way and that the easy way is inherently not the right way. It's the wrong way. And of course, there are times that is true, but it means that we have, for many of us, many overachievers, distrust the easy and pursue sort of just more self-sacrifice, more exhaustion, because that is, that's the only correct path. And so we leave all this low-hanging fruit, these alternative strategies that, you know, could you make the essential things, the easiest things in your life? 
you know, what would happen if you could do that? Uh, I was just coaching somebody through a process. I said, what's something that's essential for you that you're under-investing in? And he said, well, eating, you know, just eating healthy. I'm just not doing that. Is you know, really matters to me. I can, for longevity, it matters for overall health, for, for just, you know, my, my you know, being able to achieve the other things I want right now in my life. I mean, for all these reasons, we just take him through a few simple questions. Well, you know, how could we make this effortless? We just tried to invert it using a different question. Instead of how can you work harder to achieve this, how could we make the task 10x, you know, more, more effortless? And, and we spent just about 10 minutes talking through it. We identified, well, you know, really all that needs to happen for him is he, he wants food, you know, a lunch that's healthy delivered to him at 11.30 or 12 each day because normally he's hungry then, but he doesn't eat until he's so hungry he just eats fast food. And that's the predictable pattern. So I, I said, what could you do to make that happen? What's the first obvious step? Well, I'll just go online you know, go to Google. That would be the first obvious step and search for an app that could deliver food. I said, okay, if you did that, what could you do in 10 minutes if you did a microburst? And he, this awkward pause, he says, I think I could do everything. I think I could get the app. I think I could put my credit card information in, choose the meals, choose when to arrive, have it all set up. I think the whole thing is 10 minutes. I said, how long have you struggled with the problem? 10 years. So we, we have a 10, it took 10 minutes to come up with a 10 minute plan that will solve a problem that he's been struggling through for 10 years. That's the, an example of what I observe. If, if people are so focused on, well, if it's essential, it must be hard. It traps them to feel overwhelmed by the problem than just to give up on it almost before they've begun. If you can invert the situation by asking a different question, how could we make this effortless? Suddenly you open yourself to new solutions, sometimes so simple it's hard to believe, but they work and they allow people to achieve the results that they have struggled with for years and years before. If you can make it 10x easier, then you can get 10x the results for the same amount of effort. I can imagine this, um, you know, thinking things are hard as sort of a barometer of what is good and essential is also, can also get people off track. So I've, I've done this in my own life. I think, well, this is hard. Hard things are good. Therefore, I need to be doing this hard thing, even though I probably don't even be, need to be doing that thing. It's not even essential. Yeah. I, I mean, as soon as you say hard equals good, you can set yourself up for a lot of misery. Patrick McGuinness was the, I just had him on the, uh, on the What's Essential podcast, and he, he's the person who first put the word FOMO into print, and now it's in the dictionary. So that's, that's pretty great bragging rights. And, but he told me a story of when he was just working harder and harder all the time as an investment banker, and everybody, I mean, he's, he's, he, remember he said one time he was so sick that he had to leave a board meeting three times to throw up in the bathroom. He looked green. And yet still he felt that oh, I've got to, it's, you know, hard is good. You've got to, therefore, self-sacrificial, you know, is, is always better. And it ended up almost discombobulating his whole life. And, but he was at the point, 
you know, before the, the breakthrough where he's, he said, if someone wasn't working long hours, their job must not be very important. So, so he'd completely gone to that point where just hard equals good. And this is, this is, you'd think you didn't have to teach this to people. You'd think well, this is maybe so obvious, but I found you absolutely do, especially to overachievers, to the hit squad, the people who are hardworking, intelligent, and talented. They've taken a true principle and gone way too far with it. And just to be clear, you're not you're not saying uh, avoid hard things completely. Hard things can push us beyond our comfort zone and get us to a next level we need to get to. But the the I guess the challenge is figuring out whether this hard thing has some sort of return on investment or if it actually costs you is detrimental to your return on investment. Well, I think one of the things I'm advocating is that we pay attention to our return on effort, you know, our ROE, ROE so that we make sure that we aren't using up this limited resource in a way that doesn't actually produce great results. I, I'm not saying don't try to do the things that seem hard or impossible. I'm saying if you can start to work in a different way, you can achieve impossible things. You can do extraordinary things. Whereas in right now, you might be struggling just to even stay afloat. And, and so that to me is the value proposition of effortless is that, is that the, the, the impossible can become achievable, then doable, then attainable, then done, and then flowing to you. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a big shift once you start to orchestrate your life about in a way that results flow to you rather than only when you put in the effort. All right. So this first step of achieving the effortless state then is overcoming this bias that we have, this Puritan streak that we have, where if it's not hard, then you're doing something wrong. Uh, instead, invert that and say, what would, how could I make this easier? So if you're, if this could, you can apply this in any aspect of your life, your family life, whether it's like trying to organize how to get kids to different places. If you're at work, if there's some sort of you know, procedure that just mucks things up all the time, or if you're a part of a church, um, there's just this constant reoccurring problem. Like instead of asking, you know, how do we, how do we do the same thing we've always done, but more efficiently to say, no, what would like, what would it look like if this was just a lot easier to do? And you'd be surprised the answers you'd get. That reminds me of a manager that I was talking to about these ideas. This is someone who's normally up till 4am in the morning doing various projects, pushing herself to and well past the rejuvenating, uh, sustainable level. She's the kind of person who feels guilty even if she eats lunch. And you know, she really feels that more and more sacrifice is the only way for her to, to be able to be successful. So I said, look, let's invert it. Let's ask a different question. And the next time that she was asked to do a project. It was a, she works at a university. The professor calls, says, look, I'd like you to video my whole semester in my class. And she is just ready. She's well-oiled you know, mental pattern to be able to, to go into action, to overachieve, to, to overexert. She's imagining 
Well, I'll get a whole team, a videography team there. We'll do multiple angles. We'll edit them all together. We'll have intros and outros and graphics and music, and he'll be wowed by this. And then she remembers the coaching. Is How could this be effortless? Let's really get clear. What does done look like for him? How? What is the, the small, what really is a solution if I don't jump in with all of this? And it turns out that this is just for one student who's going to miss a few classes because of an athletic commitment. So the solution they come up with on the phone in about 10 minutes of a conversation is, is that another student in the class will just video it on an iPhone and send it to him anytime he's going to miss. The professor's happy, totally delighted with that solution. Hadn't thought about it either. And suddenly she has saved four months for herself and for her whole team just instantly, just so. And that really was like the breakthrough for her, a tipping point that there was this whole world of a way of working that was unfamiliar to her, not one that she had actually developed competency in. And by just asking a different question, by getting into a different mindset, she could start to unlock this, this, this alternative and, and incredibly valuable approach to the work that she thinks matters so much. Another factor that you argue plays a role in achieving this effortless state are our emotions. So what role do our emotions play in making something feel hard or harder or easier? When my, when my, I mentioned earlier that my daughter became suddenly very ill, um, it really was a tremendous challenge because she went from being articulate, energized, humorous, uh, always you know, physically highly active on the rock climbing team. I mean, just so much uh, good going on in her life, reading constantly, writing in a journal, all of this to suddenly just imagine someone going really, just turning it really slow so that it took her two minutes to write her own name. There was no emotion left in her. She was very monotone. She would answer in only one-word sentences. And, and she was fast on the path to becoming fully comatose and, and falling into a coma. And all this while, the neurologists that we're meeting with cannot even give us the beginning of a diagnosis. And this is over, let's say, a four-month period. And every day, the capability is being lost. So... In the midst of this challenge, what suddenly became clear to me was that there were two paths, two ways of dealing with this. There's a, a sort of a visual that came to me, and I realized that we could either take this inherently hard situation and make it harder and heavier, or we could take this inherently difficult, challenging situation and make it lighter and easier. And it sounds so obvious. Well, of course, I guess you choose the second path, but for lots of reasons, actually, the first is the one that we thought we needed to take because it matters so much. This has to be brutal. This has to be, you know, that we should forget everything else. We should put all the other big rocks down. And a lot of people do that when they're faced with crisis. And so it, it's not, it's, it's quite easy for me to imagine operating with that problem in a way that, you know, the, breaks our health, that turns our family culture toxic, that weakens or damages or even breaks 
you know, my marriage with Anna, because you, you deal with the trial in such a heavy way, you become more and more obsessed and more depressed and more powerless. And there's a downward spiral to that. And, and we began to feel what that would feel like at the very beginning, certainly enough to sense that there were these two parts. What does the other path look like? It doesn't mean ignoring the problem. It doesn't mean pretending it's not there. It doesn't mean not feeling anything. I mean, we definitely wept through this experience at, at times. But it also meant that we would that we would find things to be grateful for, anything, and talk about it loudly. It meant that we would still build on our culture so that the feeling in the home was lighter and more hopeful. We'd still get around the piano and sing. We'd still read together. We'd still eat together. We'd still laugh together. We'd still, well, we'd still pray together. We would still, you know, well, we would still trust, trust in God, trust in a future, that not take a path that's so heavy and so downward spiral. And what we noticed was that as we did this, there was almost this, almost a magical force at play. It was so fast that, that we just could see hope and feel hope. Even when there was no external evidence of it, we could feel that that was real. And so it kept us going. And, uh, and, and because of that, we were able to discern better which things not to do and which things to do, which neurologists to work with and not, and so on. And it just was a key element of why things seemed to start working in a situation with something that was so clearly not working. And it's been about two and a half years now. There have been so many ups and downs along the journey uh, treatments that worked and then and then and then didn't and uh, symptoms that came back and so on and we've gone through this whole cycle and and as of this conversation she's doing she's doing really well and she's thriving again and she's and she's you know physically mentally emotionally doing so well but if we had taken the heavier path I literally think it could have it could easily have uh, taken us down on a path that that both burned us all out and didn't achieve the results. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So another aspect too, to making things easier is it's important to have a clear vision of what done looks like. Why is that important for achieving the effortless state? One of my favorite stories in the research for effortless is the story of the Vasa. The Vasa is this huge, ornate ship that was commissioned by Gustav II, the king of Sweden. He wanted to upgrade his armada of ships, wanted to protect his people from a growing naval power, all the powers that were surrounding them at the time. I mean, they thought this was, I mean, this is of the utmost importance. This is essential to him. And, and one could certainly argue that he was right about that. But how did he go about it? Unfortunately, he did not have a clear vision of what the final product would look like. In other words, he just kept changing his vision. So at first, you know, first he wanted the thing to be 120 feet long and all the lumber had been cut to the specifications. But as soon as the shipbuilder had completed that, the king changed his mind. It needed to be 135 feet long. So all of the wood had to be redone. At first, 
He wanted it to be 32 cannons in a single row. Then he asked 36 cannons in two rows, plus 12 other small cannons, 48 mortars, 10 more smaller caliber weapons. <laughs> this is this tremendous effort from 400 people to make it all happen. But then, even as they approached completion, the king changed his mind again. Now it's 64 large cannons. And the stress of the news is said to have uh, killed the shipbuilder, Henrik from a fatal heart attack. His second in command is suddenly put in charge. The budgets continue to escalate. The effort continues to expand. And the king just keeps changing his end goal. In an utterly non-essential addition for a gunship, he asked for 700 ornate sculptures, uh, which would take a team of uh, sculptors you know, more than two years to complete. They added to all the sides, the bulwark, everything. And so it is, we're now 1628, and the Vasa leaves Stockholm for its maiden voyage, still unfinished, uh, and before it's been tested. Because the king has had time to create some celebration, invite foreign diplomats, all of this, the pageantry. And so as the ship sails away, the gun ports were open so that they could fire a salute to the dignitaries on the shore. A gust of wind catches the sails of the ship, causing this massive vessel to tilt to one side. And as the cannons tipped into the sea, water suddenly enters through the gun ports. So despite a strenuous all-out effort on the crew to, to, to just try and get this water out, save the ship, everything, tragically it goes down, 53 crew members with it. And, and this is all within three quarters of a mile from shore. So the most expensive naval project in Sweden's history, you know, sails less than one mile before being buried in the sea. And really all because they just did not, you know, that king did not ever actually define what done looks like. So it sounds like such an obvious thing, but many of us set goals in a way that is not dissimilar to how Gustav II approached it where we're very vague, we say, okay, well, I want to lose weight. But that, that's not, that, that is not what done looks like. What does done look like? Oh, well, what done looks like might be, I look down at the weighing scale and see number 177 staring back at me. Like, that's what done looks like. And as soon as you can create done that clearly, it sets a, a precise signal to our brains to, to produce that outcome. You know, you could say, oh, I want to walk more. That is very different than reach 10,000 steps a day on my Fitbit for 14 days in a row. That's what done looks like. We could say read more books. It's so vague. Instead, you say on my digital book reader, it will say finished next to war and peace and so on. It's about getting so clear about what done looks like that you remove all of these extra, uh, extra complexities, all of this tinkering uh, that we uh, that we add on. And, and what it also helps us to do, another maybe application of the same question, is to make a done-for-the-day list so that you actually look at it and you say, okay, I cannot do everything on my to-do list. No one can. Uh, but if we have a done-for-the-day list that you say, okay, today, once I have completed these things, I am done, and those things are precise, it allows us to have a boundary that is so necessary in a world where right now people... You know, so many people are in this sort of Zoom, eat, sleep, repeat 
life where nothing ends, the day doesn't end, and you don't even know what day it is because they flow into each other, it's so important to re-embrace, you know, this question, this strategy, what does done look like? How did you do that with your daughter's health issues? Because like, that's something where it's like, what, what does done look like there every day? Well, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, what done looked like for us with Eve as a whole was that she would be completely healed, that she would miss nothing, like that she would lose out on nothing. And that wasn't just something that we just chose entirely because that's what we wanted, although of course we did. It was in the it was in the investment in in, in getting back to a a state of of clarity where we could really sort of sense even spiritually what what was possible that we felt that this was possible that this is what could happen in the future and so we just said okay well we don't know how long it will take we have no control over that we're in this for the long run and so you know I mean what it would mean would be I mean, it's just the same as making any other to-do list. It's just saying, okay, what, what can we do today to help? What's the next step? And in fact, that's, that's its own chapter in the book and it's its own strategy is just to say, look, what's the first obvious action that we can take? You know, what is next? Rather than worrying about, with Eve particularly, rather than worrying about all the things we couldn't control, which was almost everything to do with this situation, we would say, instead of worrying about the thousandth step here, well, what happens if this and that and the other? What's the next right step? And, and that, that took some discernment. It was really important, actually, to create space to discern, to be peaceful, to be able to receive sort of revelatory moments where uh, it happened to Anna, I remember... We were going to do all of this alternative medicine. You know, we, we perfectly, you know, believe that the that there can be health benefits to anyone by by looking at those part, you know, those options and try to in our lives. But there was this whole path, and I remember her coming to me as she was just getting really trying to discern the right path forward and the right way to do this. She, I, I just feel like I don't need to do any of that. We're going to put all of that on hold. And so it just freed her up to be able to then discern. And I remember her also coming one day and saying, I've been pondering this, thinking about it. And I think there's this one neurologist that we need to go and see. He had a nine-month waiting list. Uh, But that's the focus. And we really felt that that was what we needed to to then focus on and and see what we could do to bring it about. And I'm open to say, pray specifically for that miracle. And it did come that he suddenly had an opening 30 days later instead of nine months later. And he was, he was the, the really the, the main breakthrough uh, for being able to help Eve. He came and he treated the whole situation differently, brought a whole team with him. He took a very particular approach to the medicine. Uh, instead of saying, okay, we're going to get a full diagnosis and then treat, he said, we can, there are things you can do to treat in order to diagnose and we're going to act in order to learn. Not worry about the perfect treatment system, but take action and, and we'll, we'll, we'll learn right then. And so, and so it, was, it was this pattern that helped us make progress, you know, rather than being completely uh, overburdened with the journey. An- another aspect that makes things harder than they need to be, besides thinking that it has to be hard for it to be good, is we just have, people have a hard time getting started or they don't even know how to get started. 
why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that sometimes it's often the, the thing that keeps people from taking action is that first step? And then how do you make the first step easier? I, I think that I think that we're so in our heads that we forget that all we actually have when it comes to execution is this moment. Neuroscientists and psychologists have done cycles on trying to study now, you know, what we mean by the term now. And for, for a long time, it's just been in the realm of philosophers. You know, now is this, you know, we all live in the now and we've heard that idea, but they've measured it and have found it's between two to three seconds. Yeah, so everything is really the next two to three seconds. You can't take any action other than in this next two to three seconds. And so it's about trying to get your head back into this moment and say, okay, fine, you want to do a thousand things. There's all sorts of things you want to do, but you actually live here. And this is the only place you can take action. So what can you do in the next few seconds to move this forward? What can you do immediately? And of necessity, that means taking a small step, a single step, the next thing. And it's literally something, I mean, it's, you know, it's what you can do with your hands, with your body. I mean, you have to do something in this moment. And an example of this I love is from uh, when Netflix was, you know, just a, a brainchild of Reed Hastings. He's imagining what Netflix is today, having video that's downloaded, you know, all over the world. So you just don't even need a blockbuster. But he knows that the technology is nowhere close yet. He knows it's going to be 10 plus years before even literally the, the digital pipes are large enough to be able to download video at this speed. And so he could have just spent, you know, he could have put all of that energy into, I don't know, I guess making plans and, and forecasting and trying to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Or I mean, but instead he said, okay, hold on. What is the first actual step I could take in this moment in what the options are available to me right now? And he and uh, his co-founder said, okay, well, Maybe we could just go right now, buy a CD, take it to the post office, and mail it to ourselves just to even see if there's a, if there's a version of what we're trying to do that's possible with our current technology. And so that's exactly what they did. That was the first step. And the next day they found, yes, it has safely arrived, not scratched, not broken. So maybe we have an idea. It was never, the big dream isn't to have CDs delivered to people's homes. That's just preliminary. But this is the, the California role of our idea. This is the entry point. And, and, so, and so it's, it's to me, it's a, it's a really vital part to discover what your minimum viable, not minimum viable product is, but your minimum viable action. That we don't have to be so overwhelmed by essential projects. If we can name the first obvious step then we avoid spending too much mental energy thinking about the fifth, seventh, or 23rd steps. You know, it doesn't really matter if your project involves 10 steps or 10,000. Know, when you adopt this strategy, all you have to do is focus on the very next step. And having identified literally what is the next step, you then can build on that quickly by saying, okay, well, what can you do in a magic you know, micro burst? First step, and then you say, okay, if I can add to that 10 minutes. So for example, you say, okay, the, the project is I want to remove the cluster from my garage. And the first obvious action might be 
literally just find the broom. I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound amazing, but it's the next thing you need to do. And what can you do in a microburst where you can sweep out the shed and move the bikes into the shed? That's what you can do in 10 minutes. That's a real example from my life. You know, you could say, okay, I want to launch a product. That's the project. But your first obvious action is open and some you know cloud-based document of some kind to put the ideas in. You don't have to worry about all the 50th step and the 100th that are so overwhelming that people don't get there. What can you do in Microburst? In 10 minutes, you can brainstorm your product features. That's a, an achievable amount. The advantage of doing this is that as soon as you identify the next obvious action and what you can do in a Microburst is that... I've seen it many times and experienced it too. As soon as you identify, you relax, your body relaxes, and the thought comes, I can do that. I I can do that. That is an achievable next step. And so our belief goes up, our confidence goes up, because we're not focused on all the things we can't yet do. We're not focused on vague things. You cannot, as David Allen puts it, you cannot do a project. All you can do is the next obvious step of the project. And this is very liberating because as soon as you start taking that step, you actually start to see progress and you're not wasting cycles on worrying about not taking progress. You've actually done something about it. Okay. Let's say you get going, you take that first step and you're, you know, you've basically, you, what, what I like about this idea of take the first step and like, you're, you're reducing the stakes, you call it failing cheaply, right? So like you just do something that if you fail, it's not going to cost you much time, money or status, like getting a broom. That's not a, a big fail if you fail to do that. But let's say you do all those things, you get going. Something that people run into is they get a project going in their work or in their life. And then for some reason, there's a tendency for things just to get more and more complex as you go and then things start becoming a slog. So how do you prevent that from happening? And how do you keep the momentum going that you had when you first started? Well, I think that what's vital is to achieve the effortless pace. That is to have an upper bound and a lower bound to your behavior. It's easy when we start to get moving on something to overdo it. We're highly motivated and we go big. But the cost of that is that the next day, it's already overwhelming. And so we don't actually have a sustainable pace. And as soon as you don't have something sustainable, the results you're going to get are far worse. You don't get any of the compounding benefits of, of actually achieving consistency. Intermittency is a completely different game to consistency. A story that some people are familiar with, but I went back and read some of the original sources for this, is the, the great, it was, it was in the great age of exploration in the early years of the 20th century, where the m- most sought after goal in the world was to reach the South Pole. It had never been done in all of recorded human history, not by the Vikings, not by the Royal Navy and all of its power and prowess. But in November 1911, you have the rivals for the pole, two different teams who are going to try and make the 1,500-mile race, race of life and death, really. One team returns victorious, and the other team would not return. If you read the journals, you find that, that they just had a completely different experience. The first team, the British team, 
on the good weather days would drive their team to total exhaustion. Just as just go as far as you can. It's good weather. We've got to make the most of it. Let's push it, force it. On the bad weather days, they partially because of how exhausted they were, hunkered down. And he would write his complaints in his journal. I remember one time he wrote, uh, our, our luck in weather is preposterous. It makes me feel a little bitter to contrast such weather with that experienced by our predecessors. On another, he wrote, I doubt if any party could travel in such weather. I mean, by the way, he had better weather conditions than his predecessors. He just didn't realize that or believe it. And, and there was one party who could deliver in that same weather conditions, and that's the competing team, uh, the Norwegian team. Uh, he, he wrote in his journal separately, it's been an unpleasant day, storm, drift, frostbite, but we have advanced 13 miles closer to our goal. So what's, what's going on here? The plot thickens because as the Norwegian team gets within three miles, no, not three miles, excuse me, within 45 miles of the South Pole, with a perfect weather day, he could push and force it right here at the end. He could have said, okay, we don't even know where our competitors are. They could be ahead of us for all we know. And they could have just pushed and forced at that moment. Uh, but even then, he averaged 15 miles a day. It took him three days and averaged 15 miles. That was his rule. The beginning of this, he said, good weather days, bad weather days, we're going 15 miles. And that pace proved absolutely critical to both being victorious, but also, uh, also for sustainability. They survived. They got all the way to the South Pole and made it safely all the way back. Um, and then get this, which I find so breathtaking. I, I find it shocking. What a, what a terrific um, biographies that was written about this experience uh, said that the Norwegian team reached their destination, and here's the phrase, without particular effort. <laughs> That's Roland Hunford, by the way, and it is, his book is just fascinating on this race to the South Pole. But without particular effort, what, what, what a shocking thing to say. He accomplished a feat that no one had done for millennia. And, and, and I don't think he was saying, of course, that no day, every day was easy. That isn't the point. But nevertheless, to use that language to describe an experience under the harshest conditions imaginable is to me really fascinating. And so, by the way, the other team, the British team, uh, arrived 34 days later. Uh, their intermittent approach had, had cost them time, energy, it had left them absolutely exhausted, and on their way home, they they all they all unfortunately died. But that that's what we're talking about here when we say effortless pace is to is to be aware of the the false economy of trying to power through. Uh, and, and and what we can do, of course, we're not going to the South Pole, but we can all create, you know, upper bounds to whatever we do. So, uh, I just took up swimming again. The community pool had been closed through the pandemic. It's open again. The last time I swam, I swam a hundred lengths and it was tempting to just try and go and do that the first day. But I realized, well, yeah, but if I do that without having, you know, being out of, out of cycle for a while, not going to enjoy it. And chances are I'll tail off in my 
in my in my work. Uh, so instead, say, okay, up about 40 lengths. So I'm still going to go. I want to go at least two times a week. And I want to go at least 40 lengths. So those are my those are my lower and upper bounds. But that means that now here we are a month on and I'm still swimming. That's that's the benefit. You want sustainability, you want consistency. Uh, if somebody says, okay, I want to hit my sales numbers. Fine, have a lower bound. Never call less than five sales a day, for example. But also have an upper bound. Never more than 10 calls a day so that you can do it consistently. Yeah, even with the writing of Effortless, you know, the project is to complete the first draft of a book. Okay, that's a goal that I set at some point. And you know, the lower bound will never write less than 500 words a day. You have a lower bound, but you also have an upper bound. No, never more than 1,000 words a day. The upper bound is key for overachievers because it helps them to not use up more energy than they can recuperate today. That's what you want. You don't want to use up more energy today than you can recuperate today. And some days you, you will make exceptions to that, but over the long run, you've got to get back to approximately that pace. Otherwise, you'll become suboptimal in your performance and actually you won't achieve your breakthrough performance and you'll still be burned out. So it's an important, it's an important approach for sustaining momentum. So you're a business consultant in this book, Effortless. It's very practical with these you know, practical things you can do to make things effortless. But as I was reading the book and just even listening you know, to our conversation, it seems like underlying all of this, there's like a, a spiritual or philosophical component. I mean, even the epigraph of your book, you've got uh, Matthew 11.30 where Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, how would, I don't know, maybe this is sort of meta, but like, how would you describe the the philosophy or the spirituality that's underlying this idea of effortlessness? One of the ideas that has been powerful to me spiritually is that I can either work hard with the world or easy with the Lord. It's the idea that I can struggle and do it, take a life which I think is inherently hard and make it harder on my own, being limited in my perspective, or I can, I can join with, you know, the most powerful force in the world and, and, and be strengthened, be uplifted so that sometimes the burdens themselves are the same as with Eve, but it doesn't feel so hard. You you have strength to deal with, with the problems that inevitably come. I do think that's a that's a key idea uh, for for someone who's listening who is Christian. I sometimes think about it this way that uh, that there's a lot of Christians trying to it's like trying to be Christian without Christ or something, where you say, "Well, I'm going to try and do it all myself. I will save myself. I will sacrifice my way forward," and 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 that just isn't actually the path. I think is I think is a breathtaking injunction in scripture when Jesus writes, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Is it? <laughs> is that what most people experience when they're going to church? Is that what's wh- why isn't that the description that most people have when they think of this? Uh, and and of course I don't want to limit the conversation 
explicitly to Christianity either. This idea is that when you have deep meaning and you can tap into, you know, the the these these forces around us, that we're not doing it on our own anymore. I, I think is I think is is really powerful. It reminds me of a story that didn't make it into the book, but I I love this story is of of a woman who was with it was of a mother who was with her dying son in the hospital and she gets up next to him to be close to him right at the end and he's not really fully in the here anymore but he's not fully there either and in that moment he opens his eyes and he just says oh mom it's all so simple it's all so simple and those were his last words and he died and that became a new soundtrack for her to live by and for us if we want to take it it's all so simple and it comes with a question you know how am i making life harder than it needs to be and when we have the answer to that we have something deep and i think profound which is we know what to do next and what we do next matters so much more than anything that's happened to us in the past. No matter what pain we've gone through, no matter what mistakes we've made, no matter what grievances we've had before, no matter what, what trouble has gone on, they pale in comparison of what we do next. And so if we can, if we can choose in the next moment between either taking a step that makes life heavier or the path that makes things lighter, we are, we are on our way. I mean, each moment gives us this opportunity, each two and a half second moment. What can I do to make life lighter for me and for the people around me? It, it becomes a, a, a really thrilling way to live. It may be as simple, it may be as easy as that. Well, Greg, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? I would encourage people to go to essentialism.com where there's a whole academy that we've launched that helps people to be really able to design a life that the essential things, the most important things become as simple and easy as possible so that they can do them consistently. That's if there was one thing I would just encourage people to do that. Fantastic. Well, Greg McEwen, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Greg McEwen. He's the author of the book, Effortless. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, gregmcewen.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash effortless, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the A1 podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.